Well, last Sunday, I shared with you um, just the desire that I have for 2023 to see us go deeper as a church. And that's always the goal, obviously. Uh, we always want to grow in our faith. But it just seems that, number one, there's, there's a, a particular desire and a hunger for that among our people. And the conversations that I'm having uh, really are encouraging to hear the number of people like, you know, I, I, this resonates. I, I want to go deeper in my faith. Uh, and that's something that, that I see as just you know, an important thing for us to focus on as a church. So just want to encourage you in that as we you know, kind of move into a new year to keep that focus. I would also encourage you, by the way, if you haven't yet signed up to be a part of our Bible reading program, that's one of the great ways that we can grow together as a, a church family. And I would encourage you, if you're going to sign up today, they're in the, you can, there's a link in the online bulletin, there's... Um, QR codes all throughout the church. You won't have any trouble finding those as you're leaving. But it starts on January 1st. I would encourage you, if you haven't started yet, just start on the 8th and then maybe try to catch up later rather than, you know, staying behind and trying to furiously catch up all at once. But uh, excited to see where, where that goes for us. And part of, part of that desire just to, you know, say, okay, let's go deeper in our faith. We're going to start with one of the Old Testament prophets and one of the, the, the shorter books uh, in the Old Testament and work our way through it, it's the Italian prophet. Y'all know this one, right? Malachi. Y'all know this? Yeah. He's the prophet. His basic message was, if you know what's good for you, you better do what God says. Y'all remember that one? No. Not Malachi. Malachi. But seriously, his message pretty much is, if you know what's good for you, you better do what God says. I mean, really, that's kind of the point of this book. And Malachi is one of those, as most of the Old Testament prophets are, he's very straightforward, you know, doesn't pull any punches, doesn't, doesn't soften, you know, those, those soft edges of things. And I don't know how many of you are like me. I just, I know this about myself. I have a tendency to want to soften everything. You know, so that somebody's not offended or, or hurt by something, or maybe that you don't want to stir up a hornet's nest, and you're like, I don't want to go there. And so we tend to kind of pull back a little bit. I don't know if anybody else is in that same boat with me there. Um, Malachi is not that way, and we need those people in our lives individually, but we also certainly need the truth of God's Word sometimes. This is like, here it is. Okay, so just kind of be prepared. This is straightforward. Um, you know, we're, we're not pulling punches. We're not beating around the bush. It's like, this is kind of the message. And essentially, in a nutshell, the message is that God uh, really deserves the best that we have to give. And so we're going to be looking at that as we jump into the book of Malachi. I want us to read it from that perspective. You know, how can this encourage us and challenge us to give God our very best? So Malachi is interesting because he does not identify himself uh, doesn't tell us anything about who he is. You know, most of the prophets are son of this person or that person. He just jumps right in, and the word itself means messenger. And that's the point for him. It's like, it doesn't really matter who he is. It's the message that he's bringing that is really important. And he prophesied around the time of Nehemiah's departure. So if you uh, remember when the, the, the people came back, Nehemiah came back to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. Uh, he left around 432 B.C., and it was right after Nehemiah left, uh, after coming back to Jerusalem, um, that Malachi begins to prophesy. And so we're talking roughly 400 years before the birth of Christ. 
Uh, we're talking more than a thousand years since the time of Abraham. So let that sink in a little bit, how much history they have, a thousand years of history of their people. I mean, you know, it, when I think about the history that we have as a country, and I think about Revolutionary War type stuff, that seems like so long ago, right? Like you, you just can't even wrap your mind around how long ago that was. That was less than 250 years ago. We're talking about a thousand years of history. And so there's plenty of opportunities for them to look back. There's plenty of opportunities to see God's faithfulness and to be encouraged by that. And there are plenty of opportunities to learn from all the mistakes of the past, which we're always, that's what we're always taught, right? That's the point of history. Look back, learn from mistakes and not repeat the same mistakes. Unfortunately, as we'll see in the book of Malachi, the people were still repeating many of those same mistakes. And if we're being honest, we continue to repeat a lot of those same mistakes today. That's one of the things that makes the Word of God so remarkable to think that there, there are books that were written, you know, this, this book, for example, about 2,500 years ago. And yet the things that we are going to read in this book just sound like they, they could have been written for us today. So uh, amazing how the Word of God does that. Uh, but that's what we're going to wrestle through and as the, the, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi definitely paints the picture of the need for a Savior. You can see that the people had strayed away uh, from God. Now, it would be another 400 years before a Savior would come. But this is the last of the uh, books in the Old Testament. And it just points toward that time when the Savior would come and make everything right again. And so we have the benefit of looking back on this book from that perspective. We um, have been redeemed and have been forgiven because of Christ. And so we're, we're not you know, looking forward to that coming. We're looking back on it. But the, the message still applies. Even though we've been forgiven and made right with God through faith in Christ, not by any of our own good works or anything else, uh, but still this message of let's give God the best that we have to give still applies to us today, even as those who have been redeemed by Christ. And so let's jump in, Malachi chapter 1. And we're going to start with the first five verses. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned the hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Do you notice the very first thing that God says when he begins to speak is, I have loved you. Now he's about to jump into uh, some, some issues. He's about to confront them with some things, but before he does that, he wants to establish the fact that I have loved you. I do love you. I have always loved you. And so look back. He might be saying it you know, over the 1,000 years of history since I first called Abraham and made you into a people, and look at how I have loved you through all that period of time. So he's saying, I have loved you. I do love you. And that's where he starts, and that's where I want us to start today. Not with something new that you've never heard before, but with a simple reminder, and this is our first main idea today, that God loves his people. 
And we need to be reminded of that at times, that God loves his people. They needed to be reminded of that because they didn't feel it, right? He says, I have loved you, and then they said, how have you loved us? they, they, They just weren't feeling the love of God. Maybe it'll help to have a little bit of perspective, a little bit of context here, that if we back up around 100 years prior to this, uh, we see that in 538 B.C., King Cyrus ended the Babylonian captivity of the Jewish people. And he gave them freedom to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And so uh, during that time, Haggai and Zechariah prophesied and they encouraged the people to return and rebuild the temple And they prophesied about what would happen, that this would result in peace and prosperity and nations converting to faith in God. For example, let me read Zechariah 8, 10 through 13. Before that time, there were no wages for people or hire for animals. No one could go about their business safely because of their enemies, since I had turned everyone against their neighbor. But now... I will not deal with the remnant of this people as I did in the past, declares the Lord Almighty. The seed will grow well, the vine will yield its fruit, the ground will produce its crops, and the heavens will drop their dew. I will give all these things as an inheritance to the remnant of this people. Just as you, Judah, and Israel have been, uh, have been among the nations, so I will save you and you will be a blessing. You do not, do not be afraid but let your hands be strong. So you get that what he's prophesying, everything's going to be good when you come back. And the people are like, uh, yo, we're, we're not experiencing that. You know, that's not their reality right now. In fact, you get into chapter 3 of Malachi and you see that they were under a curse. You see that they were in a drought, that they were undergoing financial hardship. And so they're not experiencing what the prophets prophesied about. And so that's why they're saying, well, how have you loved us? If you really love me, why would I be going through these difficult times? That question ever crossed anybody's mind before? That's where they are in the book of Malachi. And the answer here is pretty straightforward. His answer is uh, basically saying, first of all, I'm just going to reaffirm to you why, how you know that I love you. And we're going to talk about that. But then he's going to go in and say, this is why this is happening. The people had turned away from God. That's why they were experiencing what they were experiencing. They had rebelled against him. And God's going to call them out on that and tell them what is going on. Uh, and so I guess bottom line is sometimes we create our own misery. Now, if we're just being honest about it, if we are... You know, in rebellion toward God, and we're not acting on what God says, and we're not living our lives the way God tells us to live, can we really get upset with God when things aren't going the way they should? And I think the answer, we all know the answer is no, we shouldn't. And so sometimes it's as simple as that. I'm in a difficult place because I am not where I need to be in my relationship with God, and I'm basically bringing these problems on myself. However... That's not always the case, is it? If you're following with us in our Bible reading, where are we right now? The book of Job. Job is a wonderful example of somebody who was not going through pain and difficulty because he was disobedient toward God. He was actually going through it because he was obedient to God. I mean, God just kind of says, if you consider my servant Job, there's no one like him. 
And so he goes through this testing, this trial, simply because he was being faithful. And so we have to be careful here and not make the case that, you know, if you're in a hard time, it's because you've done something wrong and you're, you know, under the discipline or wrath of God. That's a possibility, but it's also a possibility that we may be going through a difficult season and God has some other purpose in that that maybe we don't see. And especially right now where we are in the book of Job, Job doesn't see it at all. And he's wrestling with that and not understanding what God is doing. And it's okay to be there sometimes as well. But let me just offer a little word of encouragement for you. And that is never equate God's love for you with the cheeriness of your circumstances. You know, sometimes um, things will be good. Sometimes they won't. Our circumstances change. We have good days and we have bad days. But we only have loved days. You see, through the good days and the bad days, the good times and bad days, God still loves us. And he's reminding them of that. And the way he reminds them of that is by saying, let me, let me show you how you were chosen. I mean, granted, sometimes we feel the love of God for us more than we do at other times. Wouldn't you agree? It's just like in my marriage to my sweetheart. There are days, I know she loves me all the time. Every day, she loves me. But can I just tell you, there are times that I feel that love more than I do at other times. Y'all with me? And the same is true for her. I'm sure there are times she knows I love her all the time. There are probably times that she feels that love. Not every moment of every day is warm fuzzy, right? Even though you know you're loved. And so sometimes we feel it more than we do at other times. But God is reminding them that even during this season where you're going through even a time of, of chastising and you're, you're under my discipline, I still want to remind you that I've loved you. Now, how do you know that? He goes into the whole thing of, of Esau and Jacob and, and that, that Jacob was chosen. He says, I have loved Esau, uh, Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, I think we need to, to talk about that a little bit and, and make sure we understand what's going on here because... He gives an example from the Old Testament, and you remember Jacob and Esau, or maybe we should say Esau and Jacob if we go by birth order, because they were twins, but still Esau was the firstborn. And if you had twins, the firstborn of those twins was still the one that would inherit the blessing of the firstborn, which was a big deal. And uh, so Esau was the oldest of the two, uh, had that, that blessing of the firstborn, but he sold his birthright one day when he was really hungry for a bowl of stew. And it kind of shows you a little bit of, of you know, how he did not value uh, what he should have valued. And so through this whole wild circumstances, his father goes blind. And Jacob, Esau was a hairy guy. And Jacob puts on you know, skins of, you know, so that it feels like he's hairy and tricks his father into giving him the blessing of the firstborn. But we also know from Scripture that this was part of God's plan from the very beginning. Now, there's a lot of weird stuff that's happening here, but God's in all of this, and, and, and we know that from Romans 9, 11 through 13. It sheds some light on this. It says, Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls... She was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now does that phrase, Esau I have hated, 
sit funny with anybody else. Well, we probably read that and we're like, wow. God, I, God loved everyone. Why would he say Esau I've hated? There, there was a woman who once approached the great preacher Charles Spurgeon and she said, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. That, Spurgeon replied, is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is understanding how God could love Jacob. See, the bottom line is this. None of us are really lovable on our own. We don't earn God's favor. We don't deserve it. But the point of this passage is when it says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. Really what he's talking about here, he's talking about choosing. He's talking about that I have chosen Jacob to be the one uh, to, to receive my blessing and not Esau. Now we know from, I think it's Genesis 33, uh, where Jacob meets up with Esau that God had blessed Esau and all, but he did not live under that blessing of Abraham. And that's what we see in, uh, I guess, verse 4 and 5 that we just read here that, that Edom is another name for Esau, uh, did not live under the blessing of God. And so what we're seeing here is this, this whole idea of God choosing whom he will choose. Now I, I have no uh, ability to solve, or time to even delve into in deep detail, to solve the age-old mystery of divine election. Now, we're going to dive into it further, by the way, uh, in the next series. We're going to go through a series on Christ and salvation, just kind of digging in a little bit more into what that means after we go through the book of Malachi. So we'll come back to this a little bit. Uh, But for now, let's just point out the fact that what he's saying here is that you can know that you are loved because I have chosen you. It's that alone that, that assures you to know that I have loved you. And we get into the, old, into the New Testament, and we might ask the question, okay, how does that apply to us? Because most of us are probably not descendants of Jacob, right? Well, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In other words, those of us who belong to Christ, we were chosen in him before the creation of the world. We have been predestined, it says, to be to adoption to sonship or daughtership, as the case may be, that God has chosen us, and that's how we know that we are loved is because we are chosen in Christ. Now, however you understand that that whole mystery of divine election and God's choosing, the point is that if you are in Christ, you've been chosen by God. You are chosen. There's no question about that. In fact, if you even have a desire to have a relationship with Christ, that only comes because God draws us to himself. Now, yes, we need to respond in faith, But God is the one who draws us to him in the first place. And so we can rest in that knowledge of knowing that that we are loved by God because we've been chosen in him. If we ever question our love, you've heard me say this many times before. If you ever question your love, God's love for you, just look at the cross. That's the greatest expression of God's love for us, his deep, unconditional love For every single one of us. The eternal son of God came to this earth as a sinless person. Lived a sinless life but then died in our place. He took on the wrath of God for us. He took the penalty for our sins. He died for us. 
And that is the clearest expression of God's love for us that we could ever uh, ask for. And so we can know, based on who Christ is and what he has done for us, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are loved by God. So, based on this love that God has for us, there is an appropriate response. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar? But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? So Malachi quickly points out the fact that the priests, first of all, had lowered their standards. And we're going to get into the priests next week. So we're going to talk about spiritual leadership next week and how that applies to every single one of us. But the the priests had lowered the bar and were allowing people to bring animals as sacrifice that did not meet the requirements that God clearly set out. Leviticus 22, 20 and 21 says, Do not bring anything with a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. When anyone brings from the herd or flock a fellowship offering, to the Lord to fulfill a special vow or as a free will offering, it must be without defect or blemish to be acceptable. And the reason for that leads me to the second and the last main idea for today, and that is that God deserves our very best. That's the point here. God is helping people to, to understand that He deserves our best. I mean, go back to verse 8, and He says, Look, you would not offer this kind of an animal to your governor, but you're willing to offer that to God? Something is wrong here. And God has to remind them who he is. And he has to remind them that that he is worthy of the best that they have to bring. You know, that's true for us as well. God is still worthy of the very best that we have to give him. You know, sometimes the magnitude of a gift dictates a different type of response. My wife, Sean, is great about writing thank you notes and things like that to, um, uh, to people. And so in order to be prepared for that, we have a uh, cabinet in our closet that has different types of cards in it. And so usually you can find uh, a thank you card or two in there uh, so that she's just prepared when she needs those things. But every once in a while, there is a particular gift or something that's given, and she's like, I want to go and pick out something unique that really fits the nature of this gift. I mean, it's just some gifts demand a different type of response or deserve, maybe I should say, a different type of response. And when we look at the magnitude of the gift that God has given us, man, it, it deserves a different type of response. I mean, when I consider that I was spiritually dead in my sins, with no hope of bringing myself back to life, but that Jesus gave me life through his death and resurrection, uh, that demands a different type of response. As Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. 
I, I don't deserve the new life that I have in Christ. I don't deserve to know that my sins are forgiven. I don't deserve to have peace that passes understanding. I don't deserve to know that I have an eternity in heaven to be with God forever when this life ends. But I do know all of those things, and all of those things are true. And it's not true because of me. It's true because of him. Because he is so good, and because he is so good, he deserves the best that I can give to him. And so as a result, I want to give him my best, but I have to admit that sometimes I fall short. Sometimes I get lazy, sometimes I get apathetic, sometimes maybe it's just downright rebellion, but I need to be reminded regularly of the magnitude of God's gift because then that motivates me and it reminds me to give the very best that I have to him. Well, let's continue reading the rest of the chapter, verse 10 says, oh, that you would shut the temple door so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations." It's clear here that the issue is that God's name is being dishonored in the way that people are bringing these contemptible sacrifices to him. They aren't bringing their best, and God deserves that. And so he uses a phrase here that just really jumped off the page to me when I read that. He talked about lighting useless fires on my altar. He says, look, when you bring a, a, an animal like that, when you bring something less than your best and you say that that's an offering and you try to light that offering on the altar, that is a useless fire. It's pointless if you're not bringing your best. You know, we talked about this last week. We talked about worship and, you know, that, that, that we bring God the best that we have to give. But we also made the fact that, or made the point that it's really a matter of what's in the heart. God is concerned about our motivation, He's not just concerned about us going through the motions. He's not concerned about you coming and, and just you know, being in church on a Sunday. It's a wonderful thing, especially at 8 o'clock. That's good. Give yourself a pat on the back. But that's not enough. The real issue is where is your heart? Are you, are you coming ready to give God the best that you have to give? And so I want to end by just talking about, okay, what does that look like, practically speaking? Last week, we, we talked about four different steps that we take as a church. Worship, grow, serve, and give. And so I just want to kind of evaluate those things and say, okay, for me personally, just kind of the, to, to pull back the curtain a little bit, this is what this looks like for me. I, I know I'm not there yet. I'm still a work in progress, and, and there are certain areas that, that I'm still kind of sorting through, okay, God, what exactly does this look like? And I'm not quite sure yet, but, um, but I'm, I'm wanting to give God the best in all these areas. So worship, for me, what that means is that when I come to worship, it's an opportunity to really engage in worship. 
It's a time to give my best to God. And I'll just be honest with you guys and tell you, it's really easy for me because of my role and what I do on a Sunday. It's really easy to go into work mode when I'm in church. But it's something that when I'm here with other people, I really seek to, okay, God, I really want to block all those things out and, and give you the best of my worship. When it comes to, to just personal worship, giving God the first part of the day is what is best for me. I know that's when I'm sharpest and, and, and I know that I get really distracted as the day goes on. And so the one way that I can give God my best is say the very first thing I do um, when I get up in the morning is I'm going to spend time in your word. I'm going to spend time in prayer. We're going to just have that time together. Um, one of the things that I'm really working on there is not letting that be the end of that time with God, you know, but to just continue to pray and listen to God throughout the day. And that's something I need to get better about and I'm focused on as a goal for this year, but, um, but worship, and then growing in the context of relationships. You know, we talked about grow means surround ourselves with other believers, um, and one of the ways that I do that is I'm a participant in a connect group, not a leader, but just a participant. I get to be a part of a group and build relationships with other believers. Um, I, I'm part of our men's Bible study and get to just sit and, again, not lead a group, but just be in the group. Uh, I have a couple of others through Elders that get together regularly through a men's group that meets on Friday morning. So those types of, of just building relationships with other believers is, is a big deal, and that really matters. Um, and then when it comes to serving, how do we give our best to God when we serve Him? And this is one, um, this is a bit of a challenging one in some ways to me because my serving God tends to be my job, you know, and how do you separate those? And so I try to do that at times. But one of the things that I can tell you that I have learned this past year, one this shift that I've made, um, I've discovered that my most productive time is in the morning. That's when mentally I'm the sharpest. And so I made the decision to come in earlier to the office and kind of get things done as opposed to, you know, having my time with God and then going to the gym, which is what I really prefer to do. I love to start my day that way. Uh, but instead, I've kind of been doing that later in the day and, and, and giving God uh, the best that I have to give. Um, and then when it comes to, to giving, one of the things that, that we personally have just always done is practice what I would call first fruits giving, meaning that when there's income that comes in, that first thing we do is to tithe from that and just that's, that's just kind of a, a given that's quite honestly easier to do now uh, than it was say when we were first married and had a combined household income of about $25,000 and I'm going to seminary and you know my wife's working full-time putting me through and all that but um, but you know we, we give God the best of, of what we have to give now I don't know if that helps at all but I will just say this there's always opportunity for us to grow in these areas. And I would just remind you that it's, it's a heart thing. It's the condition of our heart that matters. It's not, you know, can I check the box and say, I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. Where is my heart and my motivation? And my prayer for myself and my prayer for our church family is that our heart would be to honor God in everything that we do. And the reason, verse 14, ends it this way by God reminding us, I am a great king. He deserves the best that we can give him. Let's pray together. Lord, would you um, just bring conviction that only you can? Lord, that in everything, um, in our worship, uh, Lord, in the relationships we establish, in the way we serve you, in the way we give to your kingdom, all of those things, God, help us to give our best. Lord, help us to, to have our hearts in the right place. 
Lord, I pray that you are honored uh, just with the way that we desire to worship you in all things. And so, Lord, even now, um, we just come before your throne wanting to, to give the very best that we have to give to you because you deserve that. You are worthy of that. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.